Welcome to Tooled Up Education's Researcher of the Month, where Dr. Cathy Weston selects a paper from a notable researcher that will be of interest to parents and school staff everywhere. Simon Brett completed a Master's of Psychological Theory and Practice at Aarhus University in Denmark and the University of Reading, UK, where he's also completed his training as an adult psychological well-being practitioner in the Berkshire Healthcare Foundation Trust. He then trained at the Anxiety and Depression Research Clinic for Children and Young People and was appointed as a child and young person psychological well-being practitioner working clinically at the University of Reading and in local secondary schools. In 2018, he began a PhD at Macquarie University in Sydney and the University of Reading UK, researching how young autistic people navigate the social world. He's committed to understanding the distinct challenges and opportunities that face autistic and non-autistic young people and is dedicated to supporting the mental health of children, young people and adults. Welcome, Simon. How are you? Yeah, I'm okay, thank you. How are you doing? I'm very well. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview. Just to sort of highlight why we've invited you, we came across a fantastic research study where you were the uh, lead author, and it was published very, very recently in December called Brief Behavioral Activation Therapy for Adolescent Depression in Schools, Two Case Examples. And as part of our new initiative, Research Paper of the Month, we've decided to just dwell on this paper and to really highlight the exciting insights that it provides and to think about potential application for the some of the things that you've highlighted within it. Thanks, Kathy. Yeah, it sounds great. It's a real pleasure to, to be talking to you. So yeah, thank you. So tell us a little bit about the background to this particular paper. And just if you could just frame the discussion in terms of the issues that we have with teenage depression in secondary schools. So depression is a common mental health problem experienced by people of all ages, many people of all ages. And adolescence is a particular time of life when you're actually most likely to develop depression. And there are a few key challenges to treating depression in adolescence. So firstly, there are not nearly enough trained clinicians who can offer conventional evidence-based psychological therapies. So this shortage of therapists means that there's a long waiting list for treatment. And because of this, depression often goes untreated for long periods of time in adolescence, which means young people may miss more opportunities in their everyday life and are actually at greater risk for developing more severe depression. So another thing is that Professor John Weiss and his colleagues in 2017 reviewed the effectiveness of the conventional psychological therapies for depression in adolescence and found that only half of young people who are offered evidence-based treatments for depression actually get better. And another challenge is that many young people also drop out of existing conventional evidence-based therapies. So Professor Ian Goodyear and colleagues ran a multi-centre randomised control trial of 465 young people with depression and found that 37% dropped out before the end of treatment. And it's not quite known why. It's likely to be a lot of different reasons. So I guess given these challenges, it's really crucial to help young people access evidence-based treatments more easily and more quickly. And in 2017, the UK government committed to developing mental health services in schools. So schools has been seen as a particular place where mental health treatment 
might be provided for mild to moderate depression before things become more severe. So this project and yet others like it are particularly important in order to rigorously evaluate the effectiveness of delivering particular psychological treatments in school settings. It's fascinating, Simon, isn't it? Because the problem is so much is left at schools' doors these days. You know, they are expected to solve everything. And I think that, as you've highlighted, there's a lot of work to be done. School provides a rich context for the detection of early mental distress. But as you've articulated, it's difficult, isn't it? Because there's a lot of volume, there's a lot of issues that are percolating through and, and, and staff, you know, pastoral staff have so much on their plate that, you know, what you've identified is we need to do better and we need to work smarter in this area and find ways to introduce things that can be easily applied in that setting. Yeah, I think that's right. And what I'd uh, add to that is that it's shouldn't be asking teachers to sort of take up all of this load and to try and deliver these interventions and, and do all of this. It actually should be working together with mental health services and implementing these trained clinicians into school, which can then actually hopefully lighten this burden on teachers and, and help them to identify young people who are struggling early on and provide really clear and structured support for them. So tell us a little bit about what's called brief behavioural activation therapy, what it is and how it works. Yeah, so a brief behavioural activation is something called a low-intensity psychological treatment for adolescents experiencing depression. So low-intensity in this context means treatment that is relatively brief, builds on young people's own resources and capacities where possible. So when we feel low, I guess we tend to stop doing things that matter. And as a result of that, we tend to get less out of life, which makes us feel even lower. So for example, if we're feeling a bit low, we might not meet up with our friends because we don't feel like it. And as a result of that, we don't get any of the benefits that we get from meeting up with our friends. And because we've not met up with them, we then start to feel even worse. So brief behavioral activation aims to target the behavior in that vicious cycle. So to do more of what matters to that person, if we do that, we then feel better and get more out of our life. So we have a little sort of phrase about it. It's, it sounds very simple, but it's not easy to do, especially when we're feeling quite low and sad. And I think, Simon, a lot of that, what you've just said is quite intuitive. You know, parents know that if they've got a teenager who's feeling very low and down, that it's a good idea to get them out exercising, doing more of what they love or seeing people that make them feel good about themselves. But it's easier said than done, isn't it? Yes, exactly. Um, and so the, I guess the sort of nuts and bolts of, of how this works in brief behavioral activation is that first the therapist and young person work together to identify how that young person's spending their time. And then the therapist really listens and helps that young person to discuss yeah, what personally matters to them? What are their values? So then armed with that information, first on, yeah, so how is that young person spending their time? And what is important to them? Armed with that information, the therapist and the young person can then plan in and schedule in activities that are really important and valuable into their daily life. 
One of the things that I wanted to ask you is, it seems so intuitive, it was surprising that it's never been done before. Is the uniqueness of this approach, the brevity of it, and the model that is is much more efficient than what would have traditionally happened? Yeah, I think that's fair. So traditionally, with adults, this was a, it's called just behavioral activation. And this is something that, yeah, is happens over many more sessions. And is delivered in different ways. So in one way, it's not framed in this values-based approach where you're thinking about doing what matters to this particular individual. Actually, in some, it was just framed as trying to get a balance of activities across different areas of life. So at work or school, but physical activity and hobbies and with other people as well. So it depends a little bit on how it was framed um, in the past. But yeah, you're right. It is very, very intuitive. So I guess the, the novel thing is, yeah, the brevity and yeah, working with that young person to identify what is important to them. So let's just dwell a moment on the actual screening process. So you're, you're working in a school. You've got you know, 2,000 pupils in the school. How can a school, and is it the school, who screens for the early signs of depression? And how does that process work within this model? So what we did um, in school, so I worked in three different schools, and we actually ran the survey ourselves. So during the first period when all the pupils were with their tutors, we came in and we gave everybody a sort of short questionnaire that they'd all consented to and their parents had consented to as well. And that asked some sort of questions on symptoms of low mood. And so it's called the short mood and feelings questionnaire was one of the things that we asked about. And that gives just a very rough indicator of yeah, if someone is experiencing some symptoms of low mood, such as I felt so tired and I just sat around and did nothing. So someone would rate how true that was for them over the last couple of weeks. And then importantly, we then asked directly, would you like help with any of these things? So you can tick if you would like help with bullying or low mood or depression or anxiety or schoolwork. So it's a wide range of things. And then we would follow up on those afterwards if people did tick yes. So, so that short mood and feelings questionnaire, is that something that only a clinician can distribute? Or is that something that anyone working in a school could sort of dish out in order to establish need? It's something that anyone can dish out in order to establish need. But what I would really caution against is that it needs to be dished out with the under the aim of that there needs to be support put in place for afterwards. So if you identify the need, there needs to be this clear plan of following it up in order for it to be very ethically done so we had in our ethics that if someone rated themselves as experiencing quite a few symptoms of low mood then they would be contacted and followed up and given the opportunity to take part in a full assessment of their difficulties and tell us a little bit about the staff that were involved in this particular research project so you were obviously doing the screening and you know involved with that co- collection of data but who else does it involve within the school setting so the pastoral support staff are key points of contact so when we think about depression obviously things that come with that are risk management so if someone's at risk of harm to themselves or to someone else 
then there needs to be a clear point of contact with the relevant pastoral support staff. And then there also needs to be clear communication with often someone higher up in the school, so the, the deputy head teacher or the head teacher, just so that they are aware of the things that are going on and, and what's actually happening in a school setting. And then some very brief information would be given to the teachers who are actually handing out these questionnaires and, and asking their pupils to do it. So the, the research team would also go in and help explain alongside the teachers, but just having the teachers there as well is quite important for the young people to actually fill them out and feel comfortable to do so. And in, in terms of your sort of findings, in terms of that screening process, did they largely mirror rates of prevalence in the general community? I'm sorry, I don't actually know exactly if they did, but the, the full findings are going to be given by uh, Dr. Laura Pass and Professor Shirley Reynolds. So this trial, they're still being prepared at the moment, but they will all be released in due course. But I'm sorry, I can't answer that at the moment. So what implications do the findings have for schools and teachers at this point, Simon? So yeah, I guess the caveat there is that these are just two case examples. So I can't, um, again, say too much. But I guess the implications for schools, in my view, first of all, is, is the importance of clear communication pathways between staff. So firstly, in order to manage risk, as I mentioned, so if things came up during the therapy, then it'd be important to know who to speak to that's most appropriate. And then also, when we're thinking about planning in activities that are important to those young people, lots of those would be related to education and getting support in revision, or if they're having difficulties in a particular lesson. So being able to communicate clearly with the teachers as well, if it was needed, is really important in supporting academic success for the two young people I worked with, but also their, their mental well-being as well. Another thing that seemed to be quite a big implication for, for schools is the idea of having a service like this embedded in, but separate from the school hierarchy and establishment. It often seemed to allow young people to perhaps open up a little bit more as they weren't talking directly to someone from the school. And I think for teachers, the findings for these two young people in particular show the importance of a balance of activities. So emphasising sort of continuing hobbies and other activities whilst continuing to do schoolwork in order to be more resilient to increased pressure around exams, and workload and things like that was really important for these two young people. So it's almost like that diversity of access to activities, all of which children are currently denied access to, which is extremely worrying. But it's about that sort of self-esteem and self-knowledge and being able to experience yourself as competent and engaged in a variety of activities that aren't just to do with academic work, really. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And yeah, you've, you've touched upon COVID, as, as we know. So this, this study was done before the coronavirus. And so I guess it's also quite good in a way that we're talking about this today as well, because it's quite likely that depression might even be even more prevalent as well. So it's something that we really need to think about and think about ways that we can help young people get through this and move on and, and do the things that are important to them. 
So you just mentioned this idea that it's a good idea. Schools have clear pathways so young people understand who they could go to if they feel like realistically who they can turn to, who they can contact. In my experience, that's often there might be a poster on the wall, but young people are quite reluctant to actually approach. You know, it's, it takes a lot of courage to to say I'm not coping and to, to tell your form teacher, for example. But what you've suggested is there might be uh, different ways in which we can encourage that help-seeking behaviour in pupils. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's for me, it's all about removing these these barriers to help-seeking. And so one barrier, you're right, is if they have to sort of go up to a specific member of staff and tell them, or they have to respond to this just thing on a poster. But if they're perhaps just yeah ticking on a questionnaire that everybody in school is doing, so it's very normalised, if the whole school has a very sort of open and accessible attitude towards seeking mental health support, and I think crucially that the support is there in school and they know that if they do seek help, if you're a young person and you seek help in the past, you'd be asked to go and visit your GP. And then often, you, if you were experiencing symptoms of depression, you'd be put on this wait list for one year, two years, and, and it'd be very difficult to actually get help. Whereas if that support is there in schools and you can get help relatively quickly, then seeing those direct results may actually also influence and encourage help-seeking behaviour for young people. So what you're suggesting is don't surface need if you're not going to be there to provide the pathways to support. Exactly. In terms of, again, back to that survey, you've got this short mood and feelings questionnaire. And I know there are multiple tools, evaluative tools available to secondary schools. But, you know, if you were the head teacher of a UK secondary school, which tool would you use? And how often would you screen, providing you had that pathway to support available beyond that? And if you didn't want to use a survey, what sort of questions do you need to really ask to pinpoint pupils at risk of depression? It's a good question. And yeah, one that I don't really feel too qualified to answer. But what I will say is I think one of the most important things that we found when delivering our survey in schools is to ask directly, would you like help with the following? You're right. There's lots of different measures and different ways that you can screen for someone being at risk of depression and and all sorts of things. But the most important thing was to basically ask, yeah, would you like help with low mood depression? Would you like help with bullying? Would you like help with schoolwork? And actually, that's quite a simple thing to do. But if you're removing the barrier of having to go up to someone and, and really open up and everything, but you're just all you have to do is tick a box and then you know that you will be followed up with there will be some action taken from that and some support given, then perhaps that's actually a much better thing to do. So it's really about the responsiveness. That that really matters because it's quite a scary thought that a child might tick that box saying, I need help, and then they don't really hear from anyone beyond that. Yes, exactly. And I know that you know that this uh, idea of the values that, that you mentioned, you're framing the actual brief behavioral activation therapy within that context of values and what matters to that particular child. Is that a new approach or is that the application of something from the more general behavioral activation therapy that's been adapted for this purpose? Yes, exactly. So it's the latter. So it's not necessarily a new approach. So it's developed 
by Carl Lejeuer with adults, and then it was adapted by Professor Shirley Reynolds and Dr. Laura Pass in this briefer, brief behavioural alteration to work with young people. But yeah, I think that really is the crux of this particular intervention, and, and especially for young people when it's, it's, it's a time of life, which is really formative, and you're thinking about or where do I want to go, sort of getting a little bit more independence, what direction is my life going to take? So yeah, what is important to me can be a really powerful thing to think about and then really motivating to then act upon that as, as you go along. The report mentions that brief behavioural activation therapy lends itself to helping with academic problems, including those amplified by depression. What sort of academic problems are commonly encountered with pupils suffering from depression? So in um, 2017, Dr. Faith Orchard and some colleagues uh, conducted a study with about 100 adolescents who were referred for depression. And they found that cognitive disturbances were a key symptom that's reported. So what I mean by cognitive disturbances are difficulties with concentration and memory. So I guess those two things in and of itself are going to directly affect academic performance. Also, some other key symptoms of, of adolescent depression, such as irritability, and tiredness, and, and anhedonia, which is actually a, sort of a lack of enjoyment in things that you used to enjoy, are also likely to have quite a direct impact on academic performance. If you're not finding enjoyment in those subjects that you used to enjoy, it's going to be much more difficult for you to actually do them. And we should say that all parents with a teenager at home, you know, they see them being irritable and tired and fatigued by COVID, for example, quite regularly. But that doesn't mean it reaches the clinical threshold for depression, does it? No, exactly. So these things are completely normal. And as we know, yeah, adolescence is a time of particular stage of life when there's lots of things going on, lots of development happening cognitively, psychologically, socially. So it's very normal for young people to be tired and a bit irritable, and that's totally fine. It's if these difficulties persist and are having a real impact day to day on all parts of life then that's when you'd want to try and do something about it. I know that parents, which I'm very interested in, played a role in your brief behavioural activation therapy, but that this was problematic because they couldn't always attend. For example, how beneficial is parental involvement in these interventions? You know, what can they do purposefully at home to support their children? Yeah, that's correct. So yeah, parents, as, as the study was run in schools, as the intervention delivered in schools, then they couldn't attend the sessions, unfortunately. So lots of the work was done over the telephone. And parents, it's enormously beneficial in terms of parental involvement in these interventions. I guess for the simple reason of, of facilitating valued activities. So these things that matter to young people often require parental involvement because there's lots of barriers to being able to do someone's hobby or working towards different areas of their life that they want to. Parents are vital in providing that motivation and, and actually just the opportunity to be able to do lots of things. But I can certainly imagine parents saying, well, you know, Simon, I've told my teenage son to get out and go jogging because he used to love jogging or climb a tree. And a big, big issue is motivation. And as you know, it's extremely difficult to motivate a teenager to do something they don't want to do at the best of times, never mind if they're feeling down and depressed. You're exactly right, Cathy. And I guess the key advice, the thing that works for me when I work with young people is to listen to, to what they want 
what are their values? So always coming back to you. Yeah, so what is it, what is important to you? And that's at the real heart of the intervention and, and why I think it's really valuable for young people because no two people's values are the same. It's all individual. And once you figure out what matters to them, then they're going to be much more motivated to, to do those things. And to what extent do you think it's the experience of being heard, you know, and validated and listened to? And really, what, what, everything that you say reminds me of just that word attunement, that we tune into who they are and what they're interested in. Almost they sort of are able to coach themselves, really. There's something about agency in this process that's quite apparent. I think that's a great point. And actually, yeah, you've tapped into, I think, that yeah, the real part of these briefer interventions, perhaps as well, is that it it's not that you're trying to go in and, and change lots of things about this person's life. Actually, what you're trying to do is you're sort of offering this framework for the young person to think about, yeah, what what is important to me and how can I use the things that I already have inside of me, my capacity, the things that I'm good at, the things that I'm interested in, to then actually sort of break this sort of cycle of low mood and not doing things that are important to me, to then get more out of my life and, and really begin to thrive in the world. And it was there, were all of these young people, did they just receive brief behavioural activation therapy or were some of them, you know, on antidepressants, for example, or receiving, you know, so how can you sort of directly view that the therapy itself was impactful? So for these two young people and for everybody in this particular research project, they all just received brief behavioural activation. But for, for one of those young people that I, wrote, that I wrote about in these two case studies, they uh, received brief behavioural activation for depression and their depressive symptoms improved, which is really great. But then they also, at the end of our work together, they were still struggling with some difficulties with anxiety. And so that's when we made a very targeted referral, which we could do with lots of knowledge about this person and where best to place them next. And then they could receive support for anxiety afterwards. One of the things that struck me reading one of the case studies on Anna, she's only 15, wasn't she? And she described occasional thoughts such as, I don't see a purpose in living, but she had no plans or intention to act on these thoughts. She didn't report any self-harm. A safety plan was drawn up, which included strategies to discharge strong feelings, such as punching pillows, listening to music, going on a walk. And this was shared with the school's safeguarding lead and Anna's parents. And it just struck me that some of those interventions are so simple and yet so impactful. You know, the ability to accept that feeling of purpose, but there are so many easy wins, if you like, in the in the life of a teenager. Yeah, and I think the key point there as well with those safety plans is that you, you come up with it together. So again, it's not me sitting on the other side, sitting next to this young person and, and telling them that, yeah, they should do this and this will really help to alleviate the things that they're feeling. It's actually we're chatting about, oh, so what things do you do to release when you're feeling like that? How, how do you help yourself? And then when you come up with those things together, again, they're more likely to put them into practice and agree to share them as well with other people so that they can help to support them at those times. 
And of course, we know from other areas of psychology that if you admit a goal, if, you, if you're able to articulate those small achievable goals publicly, if you like, you're much more likely to achieve them. So it's all good, isn't it? I'm just reading her case study. You know, she was given or was able to co-create with, with the team small achievable goals that she was able to, to reach. And, you know, I love the, the, the wording here. She recognized, she recognized a positive cycle whereby both studying and going out led her to feel more balanced in her emotions. And then she starts planning a number of valued activities after her exams and started feeling excited for the future. I mean, that is so poignant, isn't it? Definitely. And I think there's this moment, I think, because naturally at the beginning of anything that you're doing, the young person is is unsure. They're unsure about, oh, will this work? What's going on? Like, is this actually going to be helpful? There's this moment, this sort of, I guess, light almost during when you're working with someone, when they do something that they that is important to them and they recognise that actually it did make them feel a little bit better. And then they sort of come back into the next time and be like, you know, I did this and this made me feel a little bit better. So now I'm going to do this. And that's that really nice moment where you, you sit back and you think, wow, that yeah, that's the idea is that, I'm now not really doing anything. I'm just there to be someone to to tell about what they're doing. And they're the ones implementing these things in their own lives, which is really amazing to see. And of course, there's so many echoes with Kathy Cresswell's work, you know, that, that lovely phrase in her book that anxious children, for example, should be coached rather than soothed, that there is a element of purposefulness, of agency, of making sure that the child is able to come up with their, have a voice in this process. And sometimes that can feel very counterintuitive to parents who want to soothe and reassure and mollycoddle potentially. But actually, your work here really highlights the value of teenagers' voice in this therapeutic process. Yes, exactly. I, I was very lucky to, to learn from Kathy Cresswell as well, who was one of the co-directors along with Shirley of the, the place where I worked at the University of Reading. And yeah, learning that early on that you're just a, a part of that sort of a piece of this big jigsaw of, of people that this young person has around them. And you just want to just sort of nudge them in the right direction. And then so that facilitate them being able to use all this wonderful support network that they've got around them and their own capacity to be able to do things. So Simon, what I'm really interested in is how I can help you through my network of schools to either, you know, what would you, what do you want to happen to this research? Do you need access to more secondary schools? Do you need to hear from pastoral teams who need to work with you in partnership? You know, where's the future of this particular piece of work? So I guess the future is in the results from the large project. So what we really need to do is sort of take a step back and, okay, so for these two young people it worked, which is really brilliant, but we need to sort of rigorously evaluate the effectiveness for all of the young people in the trial and work out, yeah, what did go so well? What lessons have we learned about how to implement brief behavioural activation in schools? And then, yeah, the next steps are, yeah, should we roll this out across the whole of the UK? It's a government priority to be able to implement these services in schools. And I know Shirley and Laura, the co-authors on this article, have been doing lots of training for therapists across the country. So this is something that, yeah, sort of is happening and is being looked at at the moment. And when will the results of the wider work be published, do you think? 
Yeah, I'm really sorry. I can't answer that question. I did reach out to Shirley and Laura just before we spoke, but they said that, yeah, it's just in preparation. And unfortunately, these things do take a little bit of time to make sure that everything is completely accurate and very carefully done, which is very good rigorously. But yeah, can be like you want to you want to just know you want to know what's happening. And do you have sufficient secondary schools to uh, does Shirley and the team have sufficient secondary schools to work with? Or is that something that you'd welcome that kind of interest? I'm sure we'd welcome um, the interest, but I, I can't speak for Shirley and Laura at the moment, sorry. But definitely we, we can all speak together afterwards and, yeah, think about how best to do that. Brilliant. Well, it, it's terribly exciting and it's just, you know, it, I think it highlights this work, the promise that exists in working with young people in this way. And I think that's really exciting. And my goodness, the time is ripe for a new approach, isn't it, between the way in which we are providing structural support for this kind of intervention in school and trying to get it right. Absolutely. I think for too long, the people have been stuck on waiting lists and, and things have just been getting getting worse and well, nobody really knows what's been happening to these young people. So if we can yeah, really find ways of early support and early intervention could really help prevent lots of these more severe difficulties later on and help to capture also that lost time of waiting and help these young people to, to really thrive and, and take back and yeah, control of their, their lives, especially as so much has been changing recently. So yeah, it'd be be really nice to see this rolled out all over the UK. And Simon, what are you doing in your day-to-day work? Are you working on this particular area a lot? Tell us a little bit about your own research journey. Yeah, so my day-to-day has shifted quite a lot since I was working on this particular project. So day-to-day, I'm now in Australia, in Sydney, and I'm doing a, a joint PhD Uh, And I'm researching anxiety and social communication in young autistic people. So my my research has has moved away from this day-to-day treatment with with young people. And I've sort of left that with Shirley and and the very capable hands of Shirley and and Laura. Well, we'd love to have you back to talk about your uh, doctoral work because uh, that sounds fascinating. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, yeah, well, I'd I'd love to come back. Yeah, I'm very happy to do do another one for sure. Um, And we've just actually run this really fascinating and brilliant project that the sort of everyday experience of autistic people and their families during the COVID-19 crisis. So often a very under-researched and under-researched group who don't often get their, their voices heard. So we really aim to yeah, it, do these sort of quite long interviews um, so that autistic people could tell their experience and, and share how things have been for them. And briefly, what are the kind of emerging patterns or things that you've been finding in that? It sounds fascinating. Yeah, so the emerging pattern really is that for some autistic people, things were okay and they managed to cope quite well with the different changes. And conventionally, the thoughts around autism are that so one of the sort of stereotypical things are that autistic people don't like social communication and don't want to have social interaction. So there were some people who thought that perhaps autistic people would be okay with the lockdowns and the restrictions. And that's completely not what we found. Actually, we found that most, pretty much every autistic person and all of their families and young people that we spoke to 
all really missed social connection and even missed sort of incidental social connection. So just walking along the street and had sort of smile from someone, an incidental chat at a shop, they missed that as well. So I think that was a really important finding that goes against this sort of conventional wisdom of how lots of autism research has been done. So that's why it was so important to have this voice from autistic people at this time. And it also suggests that, as you say, it's it's very easy for people to think that autistic, you know, young people just want to be at home and not in school. But that sounds like that's not really the case at all, that school is a highly valued part of their lives and, and that they miss it very much. Yeah, exactly. There was even this amazing quote that I can sort of remember, and it was from a young person who were basically sort of describing how that they even missed the people in school who they usually found really annoying during the lessons, <laughs> who'd be sort of talking away at the back of the classroom. <laughs> they even missed just that and having that person there, which I thought was quite funny. That's so poignant. You know, we're all missing social connection. One of the things that's come out of this experience is suddenly everybody really gets what psychologists have been saying for years, is that, you know, what makes up our lives is a sort of matrix of social relationships and experiences and challenges. And now when it's all pulled out from under your feet, we can suddenly really understand that. Totally. Yeah, totally. Well, listen, Simon, it sounds like you're doing amazing and valuable work and we can't wait to have you back on our little podcast so that we can tell the world about it. So thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Cathy. It was really nice to meet you. Thank you so much for the opportunity to come on. Thank you. This podcast is brought to you by Tooled Up Education, the home of evidence-based tips on parenting, family life and education. www.tooledupeducation.com Parents and teachers in Tooled Up Schools can also access notes accompanying each podcast available to read and download from the Tooled Up site.